John said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or do we wait for another? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning, friends. Can you all hear me okay? Some people complained they couldn't hear me last week. Can you hear me? Okay, good. Um, we have been talking these past couple weeks about the real meaning of the season of Advent. And if you don't know this yet, Advent is not about the ba birth of baby Jesus and getting ready for that, because frankly, that already happened. Uh, instead, what we're here to do for these four weeks of Advent is to prepare for Christ's, not his first coming, but his second coming. When Christ will return, the dead shall be resurrected with new physical bodies, uh, evil will be judged, and Christ will literally restore creation to its proper form, a renewed Eden, if you will. Um, lots of ways to put this, um, and it's a complicated topic, but I think the best way to summarize it is the, to use the words of Bishop N.T. Wright, who says that Christ will, I love this, put all things to rights. That's a good idea, right? That's something to look forward to, and it's something we should all long for. But if you're like me, you've got to ask yourself the question, which I hope you've wondered, What's taking him so long, man? Anybody ever wonder that? I talked about this last week, uh, and, and actually Scripture gives us an answer. What's the holdup, Jesus? Why the delay? Come on, man. World's falling apart quick. Well, 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9 tells us why Christ waits. Here it is. Peter says, Do not overlook this fact, brethren, that with the Lord... One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. In other words, God is outside of time. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, listen, repentance. So Jesus delays for one reason and one reason only, and that's to give as many people as much time as possible to repent and come back to him. To be perfectly blunt, the Lord waits so that he can save as many people from hell as are willing to accept his gift. That's the reason. Now, that is a good explanation theologically, and it actually holds water, and it's logically consistent with everything else that Scripture says, but sometimes that explanation just doesn't cut the mustard. That's not a theological term, by the way. I mean, here's the, here's the deal, right? When we are suffering, when you are suffering, when I am suffering, when we're scared and worried and fearful, when the bottom falls out, when things go haywire, saying to somebody, well, you know, the Lord's coming back, just be patient, that's not going to fly, is it? I mean, it may be true. It may be true here, but it's not going to be true here. And if you've ever dealt with anybody in a crisis, or you've been in one yourself, to say to somebody, well, come on, man, just be patient, suck it up. God's got this one. It sounds to me, anyway, you know, a little patronizing, I'll be honest. Just last week, just last week, I was speaking with somebody who is a Christian and a strong Christian man. He is a believer. He trusts in Jesus. But we had a conversation about this very thing because he's under a great deal of stress and worry. And, you know, like all of us, when we're stressed and worried and fearful, sometimes what we know here doesn't always translate to what goes on here in the gut, right? 
Here's the thing. You and I need, listen, to be reminded of what we already know. I'm going to say that again. You and I need to be reminded as Christians of what we already know because stress and fear will challenge the faith of even the strongest person, even you, even me. So how does God respond to our fear? And what, what are we to make of that today? Well, I'm going to look at this this morning in this story. Two points this morning, not three. Sorry about that. Unless I think of one, I'll give you a third. <laughs> Which you never know. Um, I want to look at two things. This idea of suffering and struggle for the Christian. I want to look at John's doubt. John the Baptist's doubt. And then Jesus' response. Because this really isn't about John. Then It's about you. And it's about me. So, first thing is, let's look at the... the, the the fear of John the Baptist, the doubt of John the Baptist. Let me dive right in here. Matthew tells us that John the Baptist is in prison. And John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends for some of his followers. The Romans would allow you to have visitors, kind of like now. And so John sends for one of his, his followers and says, Hey, I need you to take this message to Jesus of Nazareth. Here's the message. Are you the one to come? Or do we wait for another? It's actually a pretty pathetic question, if you know John. It's actually pathetic in the pathos, the Greek sense of the word, this gut-wrenching just cry of, dude, what's up? Because John the Baptist has spent his entire life, his entire existence, pointing to Jesus and telling everybody that he's the one. I mean, even in utero, even in utero. You know the story. When Mary, Jesus' mother, is told by Gabriel, hey Mary, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be the son of God. And she says, okay. And then the first thing she does is she leaves, and, and, and the angel says, but your, your, your cousin Mary, who was not able to have children, she's pregnant, go and see it. So Mary, of course, goes to check the evidence for herself. And when Mary arrives with this zygote Jesus, I think that's what you call a newly fertilized uh, uh, person, she, this, she brings this zygote Jesus to her cousin Elizabeth, who's John's mother, who is six months old, in utero, and scripture says that John the Baptist literally leaps for joy at the presence of the Messiah. They're both not even born yet. And the point I want you to see here, aside from the like the uh, whole abort, the question of abortion and, and human rights in the womb. That's another matter. What I want you to see here particularly is that John the Baptist, from the very beginning, literally from the moment of his birth, was a man who was pointing to Jesus. His whole life has been spent pointing to Jesus. John's famous words in John 3, 3, as Christ begins to assume his ministry, John the Baptist says, about himself, I must decrease and he must increase. So John's whole life has been spent focusing on Jesus of Nazareth as the new Messiah. And now, everything's changed. This pathetic question. I mean, imagine you're John the Baptist. You're sitting in prison. And the reason, if you don't know this, John is in prison is because he, he criticizes King Herod's uh, sexual proclivities. And if you know what they were, I, I mean, I don't think it's the sort of thing that even, that even Hugh Hefner could even think of, right? I mean, it's pretty sick stuff what Herod the king is doing. 
And John the Baptist calls him out. And what power, John does what Herod does what powerful men do through John in prison. So John is in the joint for criticizing Herod. John knows that his days are short. And in prison, he's got to be wondering, how in the world did I wind up here? After all, the Messiah is supposed to conquer and renew the kingdom of the Jews. And now the king of the Jews, Herod, this wicked guy, has got John in prison. John has to wonder, man, have I bet on the wrong horse? Here's his dilemma. And this is a biggie, because I want you to see the dynamic going on here, the pathos of the situation. Just last week, I preached about John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this week, John is reduced to a sniffling, weak plea. Are you the one to come, or do we wait for another? Why the flip-flop? Well, in one word, the word is fear. And let me ask you a question. This may sound distant. It's actually not. This cuts to the core of every person in this room. When is the last time that your faith wavered? And I don't mean just a little bit. I mean, you really got rocked. When's the last time? If you think back to that situation, if you scratch the surface a little bit, you will find fear. And it's normal. Because fear pulls us into the weeds. It shifts our attention from the things that we know to be true to the immediate cause of what we're afraid of. Perhaps you're fearful. You are fearful that someone you love has been diagnosed with a terminal illness, or maybe one of your children is in big trouble, or you've got some financial concerns that you can't figure out, or who knows what, man. Maybe a spouse has done something you can't believe they've done. Whatever it might be, if you search the last time you really struggled with your faith, when you wavered, you scratch that, you will find fear. I guarantee it. John's doubt, John's pathos, John's questioning is grounded in fear. And he asks this question, which you have asked too. Jesus, are you the one? Dude, is this really real? Or have I, should I wait for another? And the reason I'm telling you this is A, because it's true. <laughs> and B, I want you to understand your own heart and understand something very profound. Because if John the Baptist, if John the Baptist, the greatest Christian evangelist of all time, the first man to meet Christ and point somebody else to him, if John the Baptist can doubt, if John the Baptist's faith can waver in the midst of fear and suffering, then my brothers and sisters, you and I are in good company. God does not reject you or me because we are fearful or doubting. He does not. On the contrary, you know, this is my second point, he encourages us. Let me show you, this is, this is Really cool. So John's friend, John's disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, are you the one to come or do we wait for another? And notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, you tell John, that filthy animal, to pray more. You tell John to uh, be, more, be nicer to people. You tell John to suck it up. Man up, boy. Come on, man. You know who I am. No. Jesus tells John's friend something very, very subtle and very profound. He says, look, tell, you tell John what you hear and what you see. Don't miss this. You tell John what you hear and what you see. 
And he lays out four or five things. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised. See, John's a Jew. And John knows the Old Testament. And all those things that Jesus lays out are markers of the Messiah. They're evidence. They're signposts. And so Jesus says, you go back and tell John what he already knows. You go back and point out to these guys. He says, you go back and you give him the good news. John, examine the evidence. John, look at the scriptures. Look at the lives that are being changed, John. This is important. Jesus takes John's friends and sends them back to encourage him, to remind him of what he already knows. See, Jesus reminds us too. Hey, let me ask you a question. This is a real one. Think of the times in your own life in the past when you were suffering and you were fearful of whatever. It could have been five years ago. It could have been 10 years ago. It could have been 30 years ago. 30 years ago, which is hard to believe. I was 21 years old. I was... Um, I was uh, in an, at a friend's house, me and my friend Bill Purcell and my friend Mike Rook. And we were all in, we were going to Wawa to buy, I think cigars, I don't remember exactly what it was. We were going somewhere to get something at Wawa. Wawa's a, a, a Pennsylvania restaurant or some uh, gas place. Anyway, we get in the car and we go, we're, I'm in the back seat, Mike's in the front seat, Bill's driving. We get in the car, door shuts, and just as we're getting to leave the driveway, Mike Rook in the front seat says, hey guys, hang on, I'm going I'm to stay here. Okay. So Mike gets out of the car, I jump into shotgun, and off we go. We weren't getting cigars. They don't sell cigars at Wawa. We were getting who knows what. But anyway, it doesn't matter. We're driving along Route 1 in Chads Ford, Pennsylvania, if anybody knows it, and we're stopped at a turnaround, at a U-turn, dead stop, and out of nowhere, bam, we get hit by a drunk driver. No tire screech, no brakes, nothing. This woman was going 60 miles an hour. Hit us, bam, full on. Took the car, spun us around, knocked us out. We were spun around into oncoming traffic or spun around into the other lane anyhow. So I blacked out, I woke up, I looked over at Billy okay? He was still passed out, but eventually he came too. I looked down, I was moving, so I knew I was still alive. And then something happened to me. I'll never forget this. I turned around into the back seat to look, and where I had been sitting four minutes earlier was now smashed all the way up to the back of the front seat. I would have been dead. And I would not be standing here talking to you right now. The point I want you to see here, I lean on that story. I lean on that evidence. I lean on these things when I am fearful now and see God's hand in my life, how he's brought me where I am. What about you? What about you? What about your own story? Can you think back in your own life when something happened, when you were fearful or worried or scared? You can look back on that now, friends, and you can see the evidence. Look what you hear and see. You know the evidence in your own life, how God has changed it, how God has gotten you here. Here's a question. Where are you struggling in your life right now? Scared, unsure, fearful? Where are you right now wondering in your own heart, Jesus, are you the one man or do I wait for another? 
Let me give you a second part of the Advent challenge today. And I'm making this up as I go along. <laughs> Not the sermon, the Advent challenge. <laughs> last, week I, last week I challenged you to the point one, which is repent. Second, this week I want to challenge you to something else. I want you to think back on something in your own life. Six months, 10 years, 30 years ago that happened. And I want you to remember what it felt like back then. And I want you to rec recognize and own the fear, the worry, the insecurity. But I also want you to think back to how Jesus got you here. That's evidence. That is evidence for you. It is evidence for you to lean back on when you struggle in your daily walk today. Friends, I love the fact that what Jesus does, I love this because it's so pastoral and it's exactly what we are called to do. Jesus sends John's friends back to him and says, go and tell him the good news. Go and tell him how you're seeing lives changed. Go and testify to him. That's what Jesus calls us to do too. How has God changed your life? How is he changing your life? One of my favorite verses of scripture, you know this if you've been here for any length of time, is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which says this, always be prepared, always be ready to offer the hope that's in you. Always be ready to offer a testimony for the hope that is in you. In other words, always be ready to tell your story, how the Lord, always be ready to tell somebody what, you've hear, what you hear and see, how the Lord has changed you. So that when your wife or your husband or your kids or your coworkers or your friends cries out to you, you can help them. You can assure them. You can encourage them with the evidence from your own lives. You know, friends, let me say this. Churches are not just a group of people that get together on a Sunday, first thing on a Sunday morning to hear a sermon and go to coffee hour and receive the sacrament. That's not just what we do. Churches are, actually, churches are actually called to be families. And I don't use that lightly. The reason you call a priest father is we are a family. A family of people from all different walks of life, of, a family of people brought from all different sorts and conditions of life. We are all here together as a family in Christ to build up and encourage each other, to remind each other of what God, to remind them of what they already know, and how God is encouraging them in their own walk with him. You know, this past Friday night, we had, a, um, we had a party at the walking tree. And it was my idea. <laughs> Lee Rogers, the head usher, pulled it off. And we decided to get all the ushers, all 35 ushers and their spouses, together at the walking tree for just a get-together, a party. Yolanda and uh, Adolfo Mojica cooked the food for us, which was awesome. We uh, had a couple of uh, uh, beers there, and we just sat around that big long table there at the walking tree, all 40 of us, and we just had a good time. And as I'm sitting there with all these people from my parish that God has placed under my charge, I was reminded of something really profound and really pretty beautiful, actually, that this is what the church does. This is what we do together. Not drink beer necessarily, but, but be with each other to be a family, to be people that encourage each other, to be the ones that Jesus says, go and tell them what you hear and see, to encourage, to support, to stand alongside one another like John's friends did for him. So friends, here is my part two of the Advent challenge as we wait for Jesus' return. I challenge you this week to pour into someone 
What I mean by that is I want you to find somebody in your own life, in your circle, in the circle of people that God has placed in your life, family, friends, coworkers, whatever, I don't care. Find somebody who's struggling and pour into them. Acknowledge their fear, like John's friends did, but then also be willing to tell them what you hear and see, how Christ has and is changing you. Because that, friends, can be the most encouraging thing you will ever do for another person to remind them of what they already know and to encourage them even in the midst of their fear. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for John the Baptist, a man of serious faith who wavered like we do when he was afraid. Lord, we thank you for the people you place in our lives to be an encouragement to us and Lord, we, we ask you to remind us to, be, to step up to the calling of being encouragers of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.